poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And what that simply means is that you come to a place in your life where you recognize. I was just talking, Jim was sharing with me this morning about a guy that he had invited to come to celebrate recovery. The guy's like, ah, I don't need that. You know, I can fix my problem myself. Well, that guy's not poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is the one that says, God, I've been trying to fix this thing myself for so many years and I can't fix it. And so I, I just recognize that I, I, am, I am spiritually bankrupt and I don't have the strength or the power to fix the problems in my life. And so I am coming to you, Lord. Today I'm coming to you and asking you to fix what's broken in my life. And I want to just, as I look around here, I'm going to just tell you that starting with me, I'm broken and you're broken too. Okay? And that's why we need a Savior. If we didn't need us, you know, if we weren't broken, God wouldn't have wasted his time sending his son Jesus to us. But because he recognized our brokenness and our sinfulness, he sent us a Savior. And so we recognize, blessed are they, and, and as, let me just kind of preface this by saying again, that many times when we be, read the Beatitudes, uh, we talk about blessed, and that word simply just means happy. Um, and we talk about anytime. For a lot of us, a lot of Christians, anytime they see that word blessed, there's always a dollar sign in front of it. But let me tell you, he's not talking about material blessing here. He's not talking about financial blessing. He's talking about spiritual blessing. And so we admit that we don't have what it takes to change. And we just acknowledge that God is God and we're not. And so uh, we just said that, you know, some of the, uh, the problems that we face in life that we try to control our image. We want you know, people to think the best of us. We're afraid if they really, really, really get to know us that they don't want anything to do with us. Uh, we try to co control other people, husbands and wives and children and employees and employers. And, you know, we try to do it through guilt and shame or rage or silence. You know, we try to control people. We also try to control our problems. We think that we can handle it, uh, that it's really not a problem, that we can quit any time that we want to. And... Um, and then we also try to control our pain uh, by either avoiding it or denying it or escaping it or medicating it or drowning it. And, uh, you know, uh, God's, that's not God's way. And we talked about there were four consequences for playing God or trying to play God. You know, when you, when you think that you got it all together and you can handle everything in your life, uh, you know, what, what that is, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. It's basically, they were saying that, you know, uh, God, we're not going to listen to you because we can handle this. But when you do that, you open the door to fear and frustration, fatigue and failure in your life. And then finally, we admit, you know, in step number one of this study, that we, were, that we admit, admit that we were powerless, you know, that we don't have the power to change. And we talked about, you know, uh, John, First John, that talks about that for this reason... God sent his son, or for this reason was the son of God manifest to destroy the works of the enemy or the works of the devil. So the second one, that uh, second uh, beatitude that we want to talk about are blessed are those that mourn for they will be comforted. And as you read each one of those, it's like, you know, when we talk about uh, blessed, um, the, the, the first one that we spoke about, blessed are those that are um, that what, let me just let me just blessed are the happy and the meek for they shall shall uh, inherit the earth. Uh, and let me back up. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then blessed are the happy. This is the second one. But all of them sound like a contradiction. It's just like you know how can you know blessed are the poor 
You know, when you read that, you think, you know, is that what I really want to be? Or blessed are those that mourn. Is that, is that, it's like a contradiction almost. You know, I think, do, do I really want to be one of the ones that, that are mourning? And so that's the one that we're going to talk about this morning. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. And I'll, I won't read the rest of it, but it's in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 3, if you want to read it. Uh, blessed are those, or happy are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. As I thought about this scripture, I thought, you know, what I'd like to do is give you an example out of the Bible for someone that was like that, and maybe you can identify with it easier. And you'll remember, um, in, uh, this is in Luke's gospel, that Jesus was uh, kind of moving through the crowds. And let's just pick up in verse 40. It says, so it was that when Jesus returned, the multitudes welcomed him, and they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man uh, named Jairus, and he was the ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he begged him to come to his house. For he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I want you to just think about that. I don't want to read it so fast that we just kind of like gloss over it. You be Jairus for a moment. You got one daughter, and she's dying, and you're coming to Jesus. She's about 12 years old. You can imagine. I mean, I mean, you know, those of you that have children and grandchildren, I mean, it doesn't take real long before you start bonding with those little guys. I was asking James the other day if he's starting to bond with that little granddaughter that he has. And he's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Those of you that have grandchildren, you know, three, four months, a year old, two years old, I think about my grandson, you know. I mean, it's just like we're close. We're close. We're, but just think about 12 years of closeness and dying. And it goes on. I could use either one of these. I'm going to use the woman in my example this morning. He says, but now, he says, uh, uh, now a woman having a flow of blood for about 12 years, kind of interesting, the daughter was 12 years old. This woman has had this flow, this uh, issue of flowing blood for about 12 years, who spent, now listen to this, that she had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. I want you to think about our scripture for just a moment. Let me go back to the scripture. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. Now this lady, I mean, she spent everything that she had on physicians, and she's still like she was 12 years ago. She is empty. She is spent. And now she, the, the only thing that she has left in her life, the only thing that she has left in life, I mean, she's tried everything that she possibly could, just like many of you have. You've tried to fix yourself. You've tried to fix your brokenness. And you're just the way that you were yesterday or last year or five years ago or ten years ago. And so she has spent everything that she has, and she is still broken. It says, and then um, she came from behind. It says the physicians couldn't feel, uh, heal her, couldn't heal anything. They came from behind. She came came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately the flow of her blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those that were with him said, Master, the multitudes throng you and press you, and you say, who touched me? And Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out of me. Everybody say power. power. Okay, power going out. He said, I perceive power going out of me. 
And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason that she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. I want to just tell you that that's what it means when, you know, blessed are those that mourn because they will be comforted. She came in one way. She came in desperate and destitute and spent all of her money and all of her livelihood, and she still was a broken person. And when she decided to lay it all down and come to Jesus, it was only at that moment that she decided, I can't fix myself. The doctors can't fix me. Mankind cannot fix me. I need Jesus. And she was healed. All right? I'm going to just tell you the same is true. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I don't care what your brokenness is. Not that I don't care in the sense that, you know, I don't care care. I mean, I just don't care how big it is. I don't care how big your mountain is or your giant is or your problem is or your addiction is. I don't care how big it is. All I know is that if you come to Jesus, whatever it is that's bothering you will be healed. And you may come in mourning. You may, blessed are those that mourn, but they will be comforted. Can you imagine how she left? She came in broken and mourning, and it's like, this is my last resort. I've got to touch Jesus. I've got to get to Jesus. And when she left, Man, I, I tell you what, I bet you that lady did cartwheels down the street. I'm serious. I mean, I bet she danced. I bet she sang. I bet she praised God. And I bet you she wasn't worried about what anybody thought. I bet she went away with her hands up in the air, just blessing and praising God for the good things that he had done in her life. And I'm going to tell you that he wants to do the same thing to you as well. So this morning, um, you know, that is, I, I said all of that to say this. That, you know, the second point that, that we need to make is the hope choice. That I, I would just want you to know that there is hope for you, and a lot of people don't think that there is hope for you. But the first thing that we need to do in the second step is that we need to acknowledge that God exists. Acknowledge that God exists. Anyone, the Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder. He is a rewarder of those that diligently or earnestly seek him. Now, you know, the, the Gallup, poll, Gallup poll says that about 95, 96% of Americans say they believe in God. Okay? There's only about 2% that, that, are, that actually state that they're atheists. But about 96% believe that there is God, that God exists. So, you know, let me just tell you what the Bible says about that. Because while you may believe that God exists, that's not good enough. And let me tell you why. That the Bible tells us that the devil even believes that God exists. The devil believes that there's one God. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But, uh, and, and they know him. In uh, Luke chapter... Uh, or Mark chapter 1, I didn't put the reference, at least in my notes. It says, listen to this. This is just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. And the unclean spirit cried out, saying, Let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, 
That's what the demon said. That's what the devil said. So to know that God exists and knowing that God are two different things. Just to say that, yeah, I, yeah, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And, you know, I believe that there's a God. That is a lot different than coming to, to Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit and saying, Jesus, I know that you exist and I know that you're the son of the living God and I know that my life is a mess. And Jesus, I'm turning my life over to you. I'm asking you to take control of my life because I've tried to control my life for so long and without success. And I'm asking you, Jesus, please come into my heart and into my life. And you know what he would say? Well, some of you are probably thinking, he'd probably say, well, you're such a sinner. You're such a big sinner. You know, you come to me. You see how holy I am, how righteous I am. You see my white robes. You see that? You see, some of us feel that our sin is so great that we're not even worthy. And I want to tell you that that's what the devil would tell you. You are not even worthy to come into the presence of God. And when you think that, you do just the opposite. You do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Instead of coming to God, you run from God. You know the great thing about that? God's a faster runner than you are. And he will run you down until he catches you. I promise you that. And when he catches you, it's not with condemnation. It's like, I've been looking for you. I've been looking for you. I've been looking for you. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome into the kingdom. All right. You know, the second thing that we need to understand is that we need to understand that God's character, while many people believe in God, you know, they don't really know what kind of, what kind of God he is. And if you don't read the Bible, you won't know what kind of God that he is either. As a matter of fact, you know, when we talk about fathers, we always typically we equate our heavenly father to our earthly father. So if you had a bad uh, earthly father, if your earthly father abandoned you, you know, if he was cruel to you or mean to you. I was telling the guys, uh, you know, yesterday that we were just talking about, you know, crazy things that we hear in life. But when I did the jail ministry that you guys have all heard of, I mean, every once in a while there's a ring of group of people that are busted for, they do the uh, cock rooster fightings, you know, uh, or dog fightings. But when I was doing jail ministry, this kid came up to me. He was a young man, probably about 19 years old. And he said that every Friday night, his dad and the other men in the town would take their sons to a barn and make them fight, make them fist fight, and they would bet on who was going to win. Can you imagine having a father like that? You know, it's just like, you know, if that's the kind of father that God is, I don't want anything to do with him either. But I'm going to tell you that our God is not like that. The Bible says that if you want to understand God, if you want to know what God is like, Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. So everything that we saw Christ do, everything that every miracle, every, every act of kindness, every act of compassion that you saw Jesus do as you read the New Testament, he, that's exactly the heart of the Father. That's exactly what the Father would do. So there are three things that I, I want you to understand about God this morning. First of all, that God understands and he knows the situation that you're in right now. Uh, in Psalm 31, verse 7, it says, I am radiant with joy because of your mercies, for you have listened to my troubles. 
See, God's got time to listen to your trouble. He's got little time to listen to your problems. Now listen to this next verse. It says, and that you have seen the crisis in my soul. God understands what you're going through. I mean, the battle that goes on. And, and see, that for us to really understand, you know, this Christian walk, you know, we, we need to understand that there is a constant war that's going on. There is a war in heaven. And there's a war that, that Satan had you before. You were in Satan's camp. We were all born. Nobody is born a Christian. You've got to understand that. You're not born a believer. And if your parents were believers, that doesn't make you a believer. But you've got to make your own decision. But the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 that our flesh, that's our sinful nature that we talked about last week. Paul talking about the things that I want to do, I don't do. The godly things that I want to do, I don't do. And the ungodly things that I, I don't want to do, he says, I end up doing that. And, and so there's a battle, there's a war going on inside your soul, good and evil. There's this tug of war. And, you know, some days God wins, and some days it seems like the enemy is winning. But I want you to understand this, that God understands what, what's going on in your soul. He understands the crisis that's going on in your soul. He says in uh, Psalm 56, he says, you have seen me tossing and turning in the night. You know, I mean, this you know, some of you are not getting good sleep, but he's saying, you've seen me tossing and turning in the night, not because you're sick or anything, because of the trouble of your soul, that you're not getting any rest. And then he goes on to say that you have collected all my tears. Every tear, the Bible says, every tear that you've ever shed, God has collected them and preserved them in his bottle. You've recorded every one. You've recorded every one in your book. Every tear that you've ever shed, God has recorded in his book. The very day, I love this right here, the very day I called for help, the tide of the battle turned. See, it was only when the woman decided that she was going to Jesus that the tide of the battle turned. It's only when you give up and say that I cannot fix my problem that the tide of the battle will turn in your life. It gives God the opportunity. You acknowledge that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I, I lay down my pride. The Bible says, and we talked about this last week, that, that God, you know, uh, he, he uh, opposes the proud, but he, he greatly, you know, accepts the humble. And, you know, when you come to that place and say, Jesus, I need you, I need you in, in this situation, I need you to fix my problem, I'm broken, Jesus, please come and save me and help me. And he says, the tide of the battle turns and my enemies flee. And that, you know, David might have been writing about the Philistines or the Amalekites or the Syrians or any of those, those people. Those aren't who we're fighting, at least in this room today. You know, the battle that we fight, you know, might be anger or unforgiveness or bitterness or any addictions that you might have. These are the battles. These are the enemies that we face today. And I'm going to just tell you that God is bigger than any enemy that you have. And he says, this one thing I know, I love this. Let's say it together. God is with me. Could you say it? Can you say it like you really mean it? God is with me. All right. Look at your neighbor and tell, tell him, God is with you. All right. I learned that from Benji. <laughs> All right. Um, Psalm 69, 5. Oh, God, you're aware of my foolishness. 
uh, or you're aware of my foolish sins. My guilt is not hidden from you. So God knows everything about you. Don't think that you're hiding anything from God. I like one of the uh, translations that says that, God, you're aware of my stupidness. You're aware that I'm stupid. I do stupid things. I'm like Chris Farley, like, God, stupid. <laughs> Some of you younger people won't even get that. I mean, I was just like way over your head. All right. Not only does uh, God know, does God know your situation, but God cares about your situation. Three things that we're, we're talking about God's character, okay? Psalm 103, it says, as a father has compassion on his children. And I, I don't know, as a father myself, you know, I mean, we always have compassion. We're full of compassion on our children. So the Lord has compassion on his faithful followers, for he knows what we are made of. And then in Jeremiah, he says, I've loved you with a love that lasts forever. It's called an everlasting love. Why? Because you're a good person? Because you work hard? Because you read your Bible? Because you give tithes and offerings? I mean, what? The Bible says that God loves you. When you were still deep in sin, shaking your fist at God, saying how much you hated him, God said, I love you. And I love you with an everlasting love. And nothing that you ever say or nothing that you will ever do will change that. I love you with an everlasting love. And then in Romans chapter 5, it says um, that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still, still sinners. It's not like God looked down from heaven one day and said, oh, yeah, there's a couple of good people down there. I'm going to send my son Jesus you know, after them. I told you the story about the guy that, you know, I was asking about, you know, talking about Jesus, and he said, oh, I don't need Jesus. And I said, well, why do you think that he came? You know, why do you think that Jesus came and died and hung on the cross? He said, well, he did that for the really bad people, you know. So that's all of us. We're, we're all the really bad people. All right, so not only does God know your situation, God cares about your situation, but here's the great thing, that God can change your situation. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, it says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. This is not by your doing. When you accept Jesus Christ, let me just tell you how this works. You know, you, you battle your problem, you battle your problem, you work on this. You, I mean, you've tried, you tried, you tried, you fail, you try, you fail. You're frustrated, you're mad at God, mad at yourself, disappointed in God. Then you invite Jesus to come into your life. When Jesus comes into your life, you know what happened on the day of Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. And, and, and it was just all of a sudden that, you know, Peter, this guy that is denying Jesus just, a, you know, just a few days before or a few weeks before, denying Jesus, saying that he doesn't even know him, uh, is all of a sudden standing up on a pulpit preaching Jesus. And he's got this new power in his life, this newfound power in his life. And that's what happens so when you invite Jesus to come into your life, the Holy Spirit comes in. And the power that you didn't have yesterday when you didn't know God, you have it today because you invited Jesus to come in your life. And the power of the Holy Spirit is there to help you to become an overcomer. All the things that you struggle with, all the problems that you face in life, the power of the Holy Spirit is there to help you become an overcomer. All right. Um, and so, having known that, you know, that God... He knows your situation, he cares about your situation, and he can change your situation. Here's the last thing that you need to do. You, know, you can just take this information and just kind of walk out the door just like, okay, that was good information. I'll keep the sermon notes. 
Uh, I might go back and listen to it online. Um, but really, the Word of God, guys, and you've heard me say this a thousand times, the Word of God is like medicine. I mean, I can go to the doctor, and the doctor can diagnose me, and he can say, this is what your problem is. And I'll tell you what your problem is. You're bro- it's, you, we're broken. It's brokenness. And he, said, and he can say, now I can fix you. Go, to, go down to the drugstore and get this. And he writes you out a prescription, and you go get the medication. And you bring it home, and you set it on the shelf. And you look at it day after day after day, and you're still broken. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. You've got to open the top, pour out the medicine, and take it. Okay? And that's what God's saying. You know, I mean, I, I'm telling you, you're broken, and I'm telling you how to be fixed. You've got to bring Jesus into your life. You've got to bring his word in your life. You've got to bring a greater measure of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you will be fixed. Now, let me just tell you. I suspect there are a lot of fixed people that are in this church this morning. And you've heard me say this before, but God did not create you to be a John 3.16 Christian, okay? And when I say that, what I'm saying is that, that you're saved. I'm just saved, and I'll come raise my hands on Sunday morning, and I'll praise God, but I'm just going to sit on the seat. I don't want to get involved, okay? But God didn't create you to sit on the seat. God created you. We are his workmanship, created for good works, I mean, that's how this church got its name. We realize that I think that a lot of our leadership and a lot of our people were John 3.16 Christians. And we felt like God saying, it's time to step it up. It's time to take it to another level. And so we chose the name The Light, which comes from Matthew's Gospel. And the scripture says that Let your light, L-I-G-H-T, so shine before men that they will see your good deeds, okay? And if I'm just sitting and doing nothing, nobody's going to see anything that I'm doing. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's exactly what happened. When this woman left, you know what the crowd did? I mean, they did the same thing that she did. I mean, they are just like rejoicing. They are ecstatic about what God has done, that God is doing something great. And I look at some of you and I think, man, I, I just can't believe the work that God is doing you. I look at, you know, our worship team, these young people. I mean, you know, I mean, when I was that age, I was so far from that. And I, I just marvel at what God is doing in our young people. I mean, I, it's just, it's amazing to me. God is doing work. And you know what? We can be like the religious leaders and kind of like watch it go by. We can scrutinize. We can be skeptical. We can point the finger, be judgmental. They're not doing it this way. I don't like the way that, you know, they dress or their tats or their color of their hair. We can be skeptical, all those things. Let me tell you what, God's using them. God's using them. And you can be a spectator or you can be a partaker. And I'm, I'm asking you to be one. I'm, I'm, I'm asking not one or the other. I'm asking you to partake in, in this work of God. So accept God's 
offer to help you. Now listen to Philippians chapter 2. It says, for God is working in you. I've got an assignment for you too, by the way, at the end of the service. Right. It says that God is working in you. God is working in you. You get that? That God, every one of you, God is working in you. Listen. Giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That God is working. It's like, you know, religion is when you go through all the motions and God hadn't said a word to you. I mean, you know when to stand up, you know when to kneel down, you know when to, we're going to sing three songs, we're going to be out of here in an hour, checking your clocks. You know, that's what religion is. You know, religion is just kind of going through the motions, thinking that you're pleasing God. I've talked to people who said, yeah, I went to church last Sunday, you know, I did my obligation. Well, going to church is not an obligation. I mean, you should be excited. David said, man, when they asked me, when they said, let's go up to the house of God, he said, man, I was pumped. Well, that's paraphrased. He didn't really say that. But he said, I was glad when they said, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Man, I was excited. Let's go up to the house of the Lord. Let's go seek the Lord. Let's go worship the Lord. It's not an obligation. It's just like, let's do it. But so, so God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Let me just kind of jump, you know, uh, to Matthew 21 here for just a second. Matthew 21, 28. You know the story. And I'll quickly go through this. We're just about done here. So it says a man had two sons. And he told the two sons, he says, I want both of you to go work in the vineyard today. And one of the sons said, okay, I'm going. And he changed his mind and didn't go. And the other son said, forget it, dude. Dad, I'm not going. And he walked away. But he too changed his mind and said, you know what? I want to do what pleases my father. And he went back and worked in the vineyard. And then Jesus asked the question, which of the two sons did the will of the father? And they said, the one that did the father's will, go work in my vineyard. All right? Sometimes God tells us to work in the vineyard, as I said earlier. And working in the vineyard can be anything, from reading God's word to praying to picking up the phone, making a phone call, uh, checking in on somebody that you hadn't seen for a while. But listen to this. You know, that when, when we become hard and stagnant and uh, reluctant to do God's word, I want you to just re- remind yourself of this scripture we read, Philippians 2.13. God is working in you to give you the desire. And if you don't have the desire to do God's work, all you simply have to say is, Lord, it's not there. Let's be honest with God. God, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it today. Change my heart. I promise you, if you say that prayer, if you pray that prayer, God will change your heart. By the end of the day, you can find yourself doing things that you never even thought you want, wanted to do. Listen, God has given us uh, not has not given us a spirit of fear, but power. There's that word power again. That's just the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and love and self-control. If there are three things that we need in our life, guys, it's that. We need power, we need love, and we need self-control. And the Bible says it is God that gives us these things. And then in Isaiah chapter 43, God knows your situation. He cares about your situation, and he can help you and deliver you from this situation. Isaiah 43, 2. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. And we keep hearing that over and over. There seems to be a theme this morning that God is with you. 
that he says, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. Why? Because I'm with you. And when you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. Why? Because I am with you. The flames will not consume you. Now think about Daniel and, uh, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, in the fire. And, and, and the king looks in and he says, didn't we throw three men into the fire? I know we did. I counted. I'm king. I know how to count. We threw three in. He said, but I see a fourth man in there. And you know what he said? He looks. He looks like the Son of God. The fourth man looks like the Son of God. So when you're in the fire and when you're in the water, you got to know this. God's saying, I'm, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be in there with you. And the one that's in there with you looks like the Son of God because He is the Son of God. He is with you. and He will not leave you and He will not forsake you. Amen? All right. Um, all right, that's the end of my sermon, but not the end of my message. Um, guys, I, Nina mentioned this earlier about the Coptic Christians. And uh, I cannot get out of my mind uh, 21 men in orange jumpsuits kneeling on the shores, and I believe it was the Mediterranean Sea, that uh, with these ISIS guys with knives held to their throat. In Proverbs chapter 31, this is going to be your assignment. You know, some of you are wondering, God, what do you want me to do? What is it that you want me to do? And Ron's been talking about gifts and talents and not sitting on the seat. What do you want me to do? Proverbs 31.8 says, open your mouth for the speechless. In the cause of all who are appointed to die, open your mouth and judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. You know what those 21 men were doing in Egypt? They said that they left their homeland because they were poor. They were looking for work. Just trying to, just trying to make ends meet for my family. When to go into a distant land, it's difficult for me to leave my wife and leave my children, but I'll be back. I'm sure that's what they said. I'll be back. I'm going to go and I'm going to work for a couple of months. I mean, we see it happen here from Mexico all the time. And I promise you, you know, I, I don't want to get into politics here today, but I promise you what, if I lived across the border and my wife and my children were starving to death over there, I'd be here looking for work or any place else that I could find it. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. They were looking for work so that they could feed their family. Open your mouth for the speechless. Open your mouth. Well, you know, some of you may say, I don't believe that we should mix politics with religion. You know, you're welcome to disagree with me, but I disagree with you if you think that. Let me share a scripture with you out of 2 Kings chapter 4. This is a story about Elisha. 
And this is the Elisha and the Shumanite woman. And uh, she didn't have, you might know the story, she had married an older man, she didn't have any children. And um, she tells her husband that I see this holy man passing by all the time. And he has a servant. And uh, let's do something for them. Let's build a little room on the, on the side of our you know, complex, on the wall, so that when they come by, when they come past this way, that they have a place to stop, they have a place to rest, we can prepare a meal for them, let's do something for them. And so they did. Her husband was in agreement. They built a little room that where Elisha that could stay, and uh, you know, they, you know, the, uh, he and his servant Gehazi could come and stay there. And so um, he comes to her and he says, what can I do for you? You know, you, you've been kind to me. You've shown me kindness. What can I do for you? And then listen to what he says. When we think about we don't want to mix politics and religion. He says, do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king? Whoa. Wait a second. Let's don't get political here. Let's don't get politics involved in this. He says, or do you want me to speak into your behalf to one of the commanders of the army? I think he was getting political. Guys, I want to just say that we can have that memory of those 21 Coptic Christians etched in our mind. And we can walk out of here and we can do nothing. But I have, on your behalf, listed five names of senators and congressmen. And I'm asking you to lift up your voice. Not just for the 21 that were killed, but for the thousands and thousands and thousands that will be killed if we don't say anything. All you have to do is make one phone call. You know, we were at uh, a Kufi meeting, Christians United for Israel, a couple of weeks ago, and Randy Neal, who's the Southwest Director of Kufi, said that for every telephone call a senator or a congressman gets, they count that as 100 people that feel the same way, that just haven't made the call. And for every card or letter that they get, they consider that a thousand people that haven't taken the time to sit down and write a note or letter expressing their feelings. So when 21 Coptic Christians were beheaded, the last words that they spoke were, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Well, we can't help them. But it if you'll take a copy of this, and there'll be men at the back door to pass these out. And just, I'm asking you to make five phone calls, each of you. That Your five phone calls are going to be equal to 500 phone calls. And if you decide that you want to write a letter, your five letters will be equal to 5,000 letters sent to our congressmen and to our senators. And all I'm asking you to say, I, you know, we're Christians. We're not yelling at them. We're not screaming at them. 
We're not taking a political side. All we're asking them to do is to please do something. Please do something about the Christians that are being persecuted in the world. That's all you have to say. Please do something about the Christians that are being persecuted in the world. Would you stand with me, please? Our prayer ministry team uh, will be lined up against this wall. If you need prayer for anything at all that's going on in your life, uh, our leaders will be there. Uh, some of our deacons, some of our elders, and our prayer ministers will be there. They're ready and willing to pray for you. Um, I want to pray over you, and, and you're dismissed to go. But please, 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 listen. I want you to close your eyes and listen to these words again. He says, open your mouth for the speechless. Open your mouth and judge righteously in the cause of all who are appointed to die. There are hundreds and thousands of Christians around the world right now that are suffering persecution, and they will continue to suffer persecution until we open our mouths to those that are appointed to die and ask our representatives. By the way, you know, they work for us, okay? They're people that we appointed to do our bidding. And this is one of the things that we care about. We care about other Christians and Jews that are being persecuted in the world. Father, I thank you for um, just your presence this morning. I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would stir our hearts up, Lord God, that when we walk out, that, uh, Lord, that God, that we would be like David. We'd be looking for a giant to take his head off. Lord God, I pray that we would be like Samson. We'd be looking for some towers to pull down and destroy the strongholds of the wickedness, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would stir us up. Let there be a fighting man inside of us in the name of Jesus that wants to see the kingdom of God advanced in this day, in this hour, right now, Lord God. We're asking that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on your people to do your bidding and to do your good works. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's give God a, a, just, a, just a blessing and a praise. Lord, we love you. We praise you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Go with the blessing of God in Jesus' name.